Well, um, we come back to Genesis tonight. Genesis chapter 37. It's the start of a new year, but it's not the start of a new book. We still got a little bit of ways to go here. Um, we are in a new era of sorts in Genesis chapter 37. And it's a shift in, in the, the focus of Genesis, and it's a shift we've seen coming. The sons of Jacob, and particularly Joseph, will become the major characters for the rest of this book. But beyond just new faces, um, what we're going to begin seeing tonight is God Himself, He never changes. He is not shifting in His character. God does not shift in His perfections. There's that great verse from uh, Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he and his character and his perfections never changes. But as we press on in this text, we will see him begin to relate to his people in a slightly different way. And we'll also see how the sons of Jacob respond to that. And all of it signifying a move away from the era of the patriarchs toward 12 tribes. So the last time we were in Genesis together, we actually did get to chapter 37, verse 1. Uh, we covered from, from the end of 35 to 37, and it was, for the most part, a, kind of a bulky text dealing with the generations of Esau and things like that. But now in, in, in chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob is in the land, and it is the land where his father Isaac had sojourned, and is Canaan. And the point from verse 1, kind of a transition passage, is that God is, is he has made promises, but those promises are not completely fulfilled. So Jacob, like his fathers before him, is waiting for that day when the promises are going to be fulfilled. And what we see in Jacob now, and what we'll continue to actually see throughout the Old Testament when we look at it, is all these died in faith, Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 11 is that, that passage, that chapter where it's kind of, some people call it the hall of fame of faith, the, the hall of faith. And you have all these Old Testament heroes mentioned and how they are saved by faith. They were saved by their faith in the Lord. And Jacob is one of those. But we move on from that, and verse 2 is where we start tonight, and it begins this way. It says, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. So while Jacob has been the main character, really since Genesis 35, or not 35, 25, uh, when, when he was born, almost all of those chapters leading up to now were under the banner of these are the records of the generations of Isaac. That's basically chapters 25 to 35. But then in chapter 36, we got a break, and it was the record of Esau's descendants. But now here, now 37, it's about what those who generated from Jacob are going to do. And so we see in verse 2, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, 
And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So this is where we are introduced really to Joseph. This is the first we read about him really since his birth. But let's go back and think about his birth. What did we see? What is significant about his birth? It is that he is the firstborn of Rachel. Rachel was barren for all of that time, and finally the Lord blessed her. Ended up with two sons, Joseph, but she dies giving birth to uh, to Benjamin uh, later on. And she was Jacob's treasured wife. She was Jacob's favored wife. And she died giving birth to Benjamin. And, and so that makes Joseph almost by default the treasured favorite son of Jacob. Uh, 17 years old at this point, so he's a young man. But he is younger than all but, but Benjamin, all but one of his brothers. Then we see in verse 3, it is explicitly said that Israel, that Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And that's why Jacob gives him this very colored tunic. It's often called a, a the coat of many colors. Um, although the text really more likely is is simply referring to a distinctive sleeved coat. The, the bottom line is this was a, a tunic or a coat that set him apart from his brother, or from his brothers, plural, in his father's eyes. It was like a visual symbol to all of his brothers of what they all already knew, that they they paled in comparison to Joseph as far as favor went. Uh, the irony of that is Jacob should have known better than to play favorites with children. He was the product of Isaac and Rebekah, and as we were in those uh, chapters uh, going back a little while now, what did we see there? That there were a lot of problems that were caused when Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. And it led to all kinds of friction, all kinds of deceit, all kinds of sin that ended up with Jacob moving on and leaving Canaan. But uh, Jacob did not learn from that. He did not really... It actually seems like he he doubles down on the mistakes of his father with this code. He takes it to a new level. And it gets so bad for Joseph that in verse 4 we read that his brothers hated him and they would not speak to him on friendly terms. So it, it, it this is pretty bad. It, it, you know, It's possible and, it, and it's perhaps even likely that the brothers viewed what Jacob did here with this coat as an unfair taking away of Reuben's birthright. Reuben was the first son of Jacob by Leah. And if you recall... Um, you know, nothing is in Scripture by accident. And, and Genesis thirty-five twenty-two, we saw this that Reuben had intercourse with Bilhah, which is one of his father's wives, one of the maid wives, essentially his stepmother. Um, and Jacob learned about it. So, if the birthright was being taken away, as and we're going to see later on in Genesis forty-nine that it actually was being taken away. It would have rightly passed to Joseph. He may have been the 11th out of 12 sons, but he was the first son of Jacob's next wife, which was Rachel after Leah. So it rightly went to Joseph. In any event, whether that was at the heart of this or not, all of this caused trouble. It led to a lot of envy. 
And envious people often turn their anger and their hatred on the one who is favored rather than the one who is playing favorites. Um, we, we see this again and again in real life, and, and, and you, you may have situations in your own lives, in your own families maybe, where you've experienced this, where you've witnessed this. I think I can say that I have. But rather than bringing these things to the attention of the one playing favorites, sinful man seems to turn the attention and the hatred on the one being favored, even if they're not at fault. Like with Cain killing Abel when his anger was really toward God. Um, So there were all kinds of problems here. Nevertheless, we, we shouldn't miss that even though he was the favorite son, Joseph was also the faithful son. He was the obedient son, the one who was seeking to do right by his father. If we look again at verse 2, Joseph is out pasturing the flocks with his brothers. Not all of them. He's with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Uh, That's Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So four of his brothers, they were the ones who were closest to him in age. Benjamin still would have been very young at this point. And we're not told exactly what it was that the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah were doing wrong. But whatever it is, it warranted Joseph bringing back a bad report about them to their father. Perhaps it was their lackadaisical pasturing duties. Again, we're not told exactly. Um, Whatever it was, the connection with their hatred toward Joseph in this text would lead us to believe that whatever they were doing wrongly was probably out of spite for what, how Jacob was treating Joseph in comparison to them. So Joseph uh, sees what's going on, whatever this is, and he could have held back the information from his father, but instead he does not do that. He, he does the hard thing here. He does the not popular, not easy thing, something which no doubt would have opened him up to charges of being what we call a tattletale today. Um, but, but what his action here really showed early on in what we read about him was a sense of duty and a faithfulness to his father. So right away in Genesis 37, these first few verses, we see the dangers of favoritism, we see the ugliness of what envy can lead to, and the fact that even being right and faithful does not solve your problems. Uh, being right and faithful in the, in, the, in, in the right and faithful course of action, but in this world in, in which we are constantly battling sin, we're battling our own sin, we're battling the sins of others, we're battling just the, this fleshly, worldly system, we're battling unbelief. Faithfulness often leads you into earthly trouble, and it did for Joseph here. So what would happen next? Let's read verses 5 through 8. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to the dream which I have had, for behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around together and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us, or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams, and for his words. So Joseph has a dream. And this is where we begin to see what I was um, 
leading into earlier, God communicating in a different way to his people because for the rest of Genesis, God is not going to speak to Joseph the way that he spoke to Abraham and to, to Jacob, his father. We see God speak directly to them at times. Even in dreams, we see God speak directly to Jacob through his uh, through through I believe a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We've been over that several times, but not here. Joseph has a dream, and it's clear these dreams will be from God. It becomes clear during the history, uh, this era of history, that God is going to use dreams both in the godly person and the ungodly person for his purposes. But the difference is that God is not giving Joseph a dream in which he is speaking to him. He's giving him a dream which uh, leads to uh, being interpreted. Um, God's going to speak through pictures, through the things he has created. Uh, And it's a small signal, but it's a significant one that the coming era of tribes is going to be different from the one of the patriarchs. And we'll see more of that as we head on here. The content of the dream itself, Joseph and his brothers are binding sheaves, maybe of corn, in the field. She, and, and Joseph's sheaves rises up, stands upright, and his brothers' sheaves gather and, and bow down. And the, the imagery is clear-cut. It didn't take a rocket scientist. Of course, there were no rocket scientists there, but the, the brothers get what the dream means uh, that it doesn't you know we don't have to speculate too much over it and they they flat out ask are you going to reign over us are you going to you, you really think you're going to rule over us of course they're blaming him for the dream he had this is all very indignant and so they hate him even more and, and so then what verse 9 <clears throat> now he had another, still another dream and related it to his brothers so apparently he didn't get enough of their opinion the first time. I I was struck reading that that you know if they reacted so bad to the first time, why would you really talk to them about it the second time? But this is all of God. Anyway, verses nine through eleven. He had another, still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, "Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me." He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So, there are a few things to notice about this. Things which later scriptures shine additional light on. Uh, First, why two dreams? You know, God, the first dream was pretty clear-cut. Of course, it didn't have a a father and mother figure uh, in a a picture in there. But why two dreams? Why couldn't God accomplish his revelation in just one dream? Well, the answer is, of course, he could have if he wanted to. Why then did he do what he did here? What he seems to be doing, God, is establishing in in Joseph's life an early precedent that Joseph is going to come to understand himself later. Later on in his life, we get to chapter 41, there's going to come a time where Pharaoh has two dreams. And 
through Joseph's interpretation, God uses these dreams to reveal to Pharaoh what will be happening in Egypt over the next several seven years, as it were. Seven years of plenty and then seven years of, of famine. Fourteen years, I guess. It, that is, but, uh, Joseph tells him that it was given to Pharaoh in dreams twice. Why? Because the matter has been firmly decided by God and that God's going to do it soon. So here, Joseph could look back on these dreams at age 17 and see how the matter of his future had been decided by God. And even in this chapter, as we go on in the chapter, God is going to start to bring this future about. There's also some foreshadowing. The the double use of bowed down, bowing down in these dreams. Of course, that's obvious, obviously referring to to his brothers who are going to eventually reconnect with him in Egypt and they're going to have to bow down because of the high office that Joseph is going to have. But there's also some foreshadowing here as it relates to Joseph's brother Judah. Now, a few times in our studies of Genesis here in the past few of, of our trips together here, we've seen events transpiring in the lives of Jacob's sons and in Jacob and how they factor into this prophetic blessing that Jacob gives at the, near the end of his life in, in Genesis chapter 49. And we've referenced that a few times. Joseph's second dream in particular foreshadows that prophecy as well. Because Jacob is going to say to Judah in verse 8, chapter 49 verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Now, ultimately, Joseph's dreams foreshadow not just what's going to happen in Egypt, but one of Judah's particular descendants, the lion of Judah, Jesus, before whom all Israel is going to bow down to uh, when he comes again. And of course that's a promise that we are still waiting the fulfillment of. But as for the immediate context, Joseph in this dream, this time he relates the dream to Jacob, his father, and he gets rebuked. Now that's ironic because Jacob has known God in a more intimate way than anyone at least since Abraham. And I think you could argue that some of the manifestations of God toward Jacob um, are at least as clear and you could argue even surpass that of Abraham in some respects. But he doesn't get that this dream is from God. Um, what, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? To, in other words, are we, are we going to be giving you honor? Are we going to be treating you like a king? That's his first inclination when he hears this dream. And of course, time is going to prove the dream correct. And, and by the end of this exchange, it, it does seem that Jacob is you know, he's keeping these things in mind. Maybe he's keeping in mind what he already knows about Joseph and, and the faith of Joseph and the faithfulness of Joseph. Um, but Joseph's brothers become even more jealous, but it says... His father kept the saying in mind, in his heart. 
Now, I'm reminded when I see that kind of phrase, I'm reminded of actually Jesus' mother Mary. Because when we read in Luke 2 that the shepherds, the angels spoke to the shepherds in the fields and they come and they come to worship Jesus who's still in the manger. And then Mary hears what they say and he, she treasures all of these things in her heart. Later on, Jesus is 12 years old toward the end of Luke 2. And you know, the caravan leaves the temple, but Jesus is still at the temple. They come back and, did I not? Did, did you not know I would be in my father's house? Again, Mary kept these things in, in her heart. She treasured these things in her heart. After that initial rebuke, it would seem Jacob was kind of pondering these things in the same way. Um, by the way, it, it should be noted, Revelation chapter 12, the very last book of the Bible, has these very same symbols. Sun, moon, and stars appear in visions that John has representing Israel and the twelve tribes the way they do here. And, and, and in that way, the vision in Revelation speaks of Christ, and so there's another way that Joseph's dream ties into Jesus. But one question about the dream... Um, Who's the mother? I don't have a clear-cut answer for that. Rachel was dead by this point. Was Joseph perhaps speaking of Leah oh, as a kind of second mother? It probably is a reference to Rachel. But the greater point here in, in that there's a, a father figure in the sun, a moon figure in the, or a mother figure in the moon, and then the 11 brothers, the entire family, Joseph, is going to end up preeminent over all of them in some way. <clears throat> but how would that happen? Well, it's a process that God sets in motion beginning in verse 12. And while there's a part of me that really wants to plug through that and finish finish the chapter tonight, that familiar account of the rejection of his brothers and being sold into slavery, this, this is where we're going to stop tonight. But I do want to close with a few observations about all of this. First, the great character lesson that we get from this passage is that those who trust in the Lord, those who are faithful to the Father, will seek His interest first. Those who are, are faithful to the Father will seek His interest first. We live in an unredeemed world, and we are pulled in so many directions. We are pulled in... you know Our loyalties become divided between God between our own sinful desires, uh, the, the thoughts and the feelings and the sins of others, um, the ways of the world, the prevailing winds of the culture. And Joseph no doubt gave thought to what a bad report might do to his relationship with his brothers that was already tenuous. But he sought his father's interest, first and foremost and always, those who are faithful to the Father will seek His interest first. And of course, the lesson for that is our Father is God and we must seek His interest first. No matter if it's the people very much closest to us who are pulling us in a direction that's contrary to where we're seeing God says to go, we must follow after what He says. We must pursue His interest first, foremost, and always. And second, and this goes along with that, Seeking the Father's interest will often lead us put the faithful at odds with the world. 
and at times even with those closest to us. Um, Joseph's faithfulness to his father comes at the expense of his relationship with his brothers. But Joseph does what is right and what is faithful. And that should give us comfort. Because third, the estrangement between Joseph and his brothers is caused by his father's love and the Lord's choice of Joseph. God is orchestrating all of this. And it, it relates, it mirrors the estrangement between those who are in Christ and those who are still of their father, the devil. Remember, there are only two humanity. There, there are only two different kinds of people in the world. There's, there's all of mankind divided into two humanities, and there's those in Christ, and then there's those who are of their father, the devil. Those who are not saved, and it's those who are in Christ were only saved out of that that former group of being with the devil the, the, who is the ultimate jealous one we're only saved because of the Father's love and choice of us so what amazing grace that God shows Joseph here and it, and it mirrors what he does to all whom he saves and then fourth finally and this one is kind of speaks to a topic I introduced at the very beginning in this last section of Genesis, and I'm talking about 37 through 50, God will speak to men. He will speak to men. Joseph, also Pharaoh, the baker, the cupbearer, he will do it in dreams, but not directly again, not directly like he has in the past to Abraham, to Jacob. These dreams are different because, again, whereas God previously verbally spoke now he's using symbols to do so. What this is, is it, it introduces a concept that's very important to our understanding of Scripture and how God has chosen to reveal himself. And we call it, it's called progressive revelation. And, it, and it's a very important concept to grasp. God has spoken at different times in different ways throughout history. And he often adds to his own revelation in the process. For instance, the Apostle John added to Revelation that Zechariah gave us in the Old Testament and Isaiah and Daniel and others. The Apostle John in Revelation adds on to that. He doesn't contradict any of the Old Testament Scripture, but he adds on to it. It's progressive revelation. The writer of Hebrews grasped this in the very first verse of Hebrews. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And we don't have prophets and we don't have apostles today, but what Jesus did, his Son, is he entrusted the church to the apostles, who now we have pastors and elders and teachers who are still teaching the objective truth of God's Word. And of course, it's the apostles and those associated with them that gave us the New Testament progressive revelation we have his word but but here in genesis 37 and going to the end 50 god's not going to speak to his people directly the same way again for about 400 years and that's going to be moses when he's leading the people out of slavery in egypt and what that is 
it's, it's kind of a foreshadowing of the 400 or so years between the Old and the New Testament where beginning with the birth of Christ, God begins to speak through His Son and His Son is the one who leads us out of slavery to our sins. Progressive revelation. So this passage, like all others, it points us to Jesus who put His Father's interest first Despite the hate of his Jewish brethren, he did what was right. He always did what was faithful to his father. He always pursued his father's interest. And I can't think of a better resolution for a new year to, in whatever I do, first, first foremost and always, pursue my father's interest. And the rest takes care of itself. The rest takes care of itself. If we do that, we may run into a lot of bumps in the road, and we're going to see that Joseph had a lot of bumps in the road. But it's going to end in Genesis 50, 20, chapter 50, verse 20, where after Jacob dies and the brothers think Joseph's going to seek retribution now that their father's dead, he's going to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. No matter what happens to us in this world, when we pursue our father's interest... We may run into evil, but God means everything we will run into ultimately for His good and our good. Will we be faithful? That's the question. And that's what we should pray about. So let's do that. Father, tonight as we just take our first glimpses of this life of Joseph, it's quite appropriate for a new year especially this idea that that he put himself on the line with the rest of his family to be faithful to his father. And even his father didn't quite understand everything going on with Joseph at first. And I guess he wouldn't for some time. But that's how it is in the world, Father. We're not promised understanding from other people. You don't promise us. Jesus did not promise us peace with the world. In fact, his brother James writes that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So if we're going to seek your interest first, we're going to run into some some big-time speed bumps, some big-time issues in our lives. We're going to have times where we have no recourse, and it's going to be exactly where we need to be, Father, but we got to cry out to you and depend on you because what else do we have? And in the scriptures, we can see you leading Joseph down this path. Of course, we know the rest of his story. But Father, I pray for us, for those here tonight, and for those not here tonight too. Father, we need to be amazed by your grace, truly. Not just a song. We need to be amazed by the grace you show us through your Son. Because that will produce in us, your Spirit will produce in us this this zeal for your glory. And, And we will want to pursue your interest. We are too often distracted by other things by man-made 
ideals and strategies and ideas of success, opinions, when really what we need to come back to is your word because that's where we find your interest. You tell us to love you and to love others. How best can we do that? That's how we obey you. Those are the two greatest commandments. I pray, Father, that in 2017, we will pursue your interest with more faithfulness than we did in 2016. I pray, Father, that you would just embed this on our hearts and not let it leave, not let us forget it. I pray that by the end of this year, by the end of our lives, we can look back and kind of like how Joseph did in Genesis 50, we can see where we pursued your interest and even when it led to trouble, you were there. Because ultimately our confidence does not rest in what this world thinks of us. This, Our confidence, our hope cannot rest in man's opinion but it must rest in your sovereignty your faithfulness and the certain promise of the son's return and his kingdom which we will be a part of we thank you for that father and I pray that we will obey you in faith to this end. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.